Chapter 100 Down the Obliette Goes Frank But Papa didn't die and go to heaven. Not then. I asked Frank how we might best time the announcement of my elevation to the presidency. He was no help, had no ideas. He left it all up to me. I thought you were going to back me up, I complained. As far as anything technical goes, Frank was prim about it. I wasn't to violate his integrity as a technician, wasn't to make him exceed the limits of his job. I see. However you want to handle people is all right with me. That's your responsibility. This abrupt abdication of Frank from all human affairs shocked and angered me, and I said to him, meaning to be satirical, You mind telling me what, in a purely technical way, is planned for this day of days? I got a strictly technical reply. Repair the lower power plant and stage an air show. Good. So one of my first triumphs as president will be to restore electricity to my people. Frank didn't see anything funny in that. He gave me a salute. I'll try, sir. I'll do my best for you, sir. I can't guarantee how long it'll be before we get juice back. That's what I want. A juicy country. I'll do my best, sir. Frank saluted me again. And the air show, I asked? What's that? I got another wooden reply. At one o'clock this afternoon, sir, six planes of the San Lorenzan Air Force will fly past the palace here and shoot at targets in the water. It's part of the celebration of the Day of the Hundred Martyrs to Democracy. The American ambassador also plans to throw a wreath into the sea. So I decided tentatively that I would have Frank announce my apotheosis immediately following the wreath ceremony and the air show. What do you think of that? I said to Frank. You're the boss, sir. I think I'd better have a speech ready, I said. And there should be some sort of swearing in to make it look dignified, official. You're the boss, sir. Each time he said those words, they seemed to come from farther away, as though Frank were descending the rungs of a ladder into a deep shaft, while I was obliged to remain above. And I realized with chagrin that my agreeing to be boss had freed Frank to do what he wanted to do more than anything else, to do what his father had done, to receive honors and creature comforts while escaping human responsibilities. He was accomplishing this by going down a spiritual oubliette. Chapter 101 like my predecessors, I outlaw Boconan. So I wrote my speech in a round, bare room at the foot of a tower. There was a table and a chair, and the speech I wrote was round and bare and sparsely furnished too. It was hopeful. It was humble. And I found it impossible not to lean on God. I had never needed such support before, and so had never believed that such support was available. Now I found that I had to believe in it, and I did. In addition, I would need the help of people. I called for a list of the guests who were to be at the ceremonies and found that Julian Castle and his son had not been invited. I sent messengers to invite them at once, since they knew more about my people than anyone, with the exception of Boconan. As for Boconan, I pondered asking him to join my government, thus bringing about a sort of millennium for my people. And I thought of ordering that the awful hook outside the palace gate be taken down at once, amidst great rejoicing. But then I understood that a millennium would have to offer something more than a holy man in a position of power, that there would have to be plenty of good things for all to eat, too, and nice places to live for all, and good schools and good health and good times for all, and work for all who wanted it, things Boconan and I were in no position to provide. So good and evil had to remain separate, good in the jungle and evil in the palace, Whatever entertainment there was in that was about all we had to give the people. 
There was a knock at my door. A servant told me the guests had begun to arrive. So I put my speech in my pocket, and I mounted the spiral staircase in my tower. I arrived at the uppermost battlement of my castle, and I looked out at my guests, my servants, my cliff, and my lukewarm sea. Chapter 102 Enemies of Freedom When I think of all those people on my uppermost battlement, I think of Bokonin's 119th Calypso, wherein he invites us to sing along with him. Where's my good old gang done gone, I heard a sad man say. I whispered in that sad man's ear, your gang's done gone away. Present were Ambassador Horlick Minton and his lady, H. Low Crosby, the bicycle manufacturer, and his Hazel, Dr. Julian Castle, humanitarian and philanthropist, and his son Philip, author and innkeeper, little Newton Honecker, the picture painter, and his musical sister, Mrs. Harrison C. Connors, my heavenly Mona, Major General Franklin Honecker, and twenty assorted San Lorenzo bureaucrats and military men. Dead. Almost all dead now. As Bokonin tells us, it's never a mistake to say goodbye. There was a buffet on my battlements, a buffet burdened with native delicacies. Roasted warblers in little overcoats made of their own blue-green feathers, lavender land crabs taken from their shells, minced, fried in coconut oil and returned to their shells, fingerling barracuda stuffed with banana paste, and on unleavened, unseasoned cornmeal wafers, bite-sized cubes of boiled albatross. The albatross, I was told, had been shot from the very bartizan in which the buffet stood. There were two beverages offered, both uniced, Pepsi-Cola and native rum. The Pepsi-Cola was served in plastic pilsners. The rum was served in coconut shells. I was unable to identify the sweet bouquet of the rum, though it somehow reminded me of early adolescence. Frank was able to name the bouquet for me. Acetone. Acetone? Used in model airplane cement. I did not drink the rum. Ambassador Minton did a lot of ambassadorial gourmand saluting with his coconut, pretending to love all men and all the beverages that sustained them. But I did not see him drink. He had with him, incidentally, a piece of luggage of a sort I had never seen before. It looked like a French horn case and proved to contain the memorial wreath that was to be cast into the sea. The only person I saw drink the rum was H. Low Crosby, who plainly had no sense of smell. He was having a good time, drinking acetone from his coconut, sitting on a cannon, blocking the touch hole with his big behind. He was looking out to sea through a huge pair of Japanese binoculars. He was looking at targets mounted on bobbing floats anchored offshore. The targets were cardboard cutouts shaped like men. They were to be fired upon and bombed in a demonstration of might by the six planes of the San Lorenzo Air Force. Each target was a caricature of some real person, and the name of that person was painted on the target's back and front. I asked who the caricaturist was, and learned that he was Dr. Vox Humana, the Christian minister. He was at my elbow. I didn't know you were talented in that direction, too. Oh, yes. When I was a young man, I had a very hard time deciding what to be. I think the choice you made was the right one. I prayed for guidance from above. You got it. H. Low Crosby handed his binoculars to his wife. There's old Joe Stalin closest in, and old Fidel Castro's anchored right next to him. And there's old Hitler, chuckled Hazel, delighted. And there's old Mussolini and some old Jap. And there's old Karl Marx. And there's old Kaiser Bill, spiked hat and all, cooed Hazel. Chapter 103 
a medical opinion on the effect of a writer's strike. None of the guests knew yet that I was to be president. None knew how close to death Papa was. Frank gave out the official word that Papa was resting comfortably, that Papa sent his best wishes to all. The order of events, as announced by Frank, was that Ambassador Minton would throw his wreath into the sea in honor of the hundred martyrs, and then the airplanes would shoot the targets in the sea, and then he, Frank, would say a few words. He did not tell the company that following his speech there would be a speech by me. So I was treated as nothing more than a visiting journalist, and I engaged in harmless scranfalunery here and there. Hello, Mom, I said to Hazel Crosby. Why, if it isn't my boy! Hazel gave me a perfumed hug, and she told everybody, This boy's a Hoosier! The castles, father and son, stood separate from the rest of the company. Long unwelcome at Papa's palace, they were curious as to why they had now been invited there. Young Castle called me Scoop. Good morning, Scoop. What's new in the word game? I might ask the same of you, I replied. I'm thinking of calling a general strike of all writers until mankind finally comes to its senses. Would you support it? Well, do writers have a right to strike? That would be like the police or the firemen walking out. Or the college professors. Or the college professors, I agreed. I shook my head. No, I don't think my conscience would let me support a strike like that. When a man becomes a writer, I think he takes on a sacred obligation to produce beauty and enlightenment and comfort at top speed. I just can't help thinking what a real shaking up it would give people if all of a sudden there were no new books, new plays, new histories, new poems. And how proud would you be when people started dying like flies, I demanded. They'd die more like mad dogs, I think, snarling and snapping at each other and biting their own tails. I turned to Castle the Elder. Sir, how does a man die when he's deprived of the consolations of literature? One of two ways, he said. Petrescence of the heart or atrophy of the nervous system. Neither is very pleasant, I expect, I suggested. No, said the castle the older. For the love of God, both of you, please keep writing. Chapter 104. Sulfathiazole. My heavenly Mona did not approach me, and did not encourage me with languishing glances to come to her side. She made a hostess of herself, introducing Angela and little Newt to San Lorenzans. As I ponder now the meaning of that girl, recall her indifference to Papa's collapse, to her betrothal to me, I vacillate between lofty and cheap appraisals. Did she represent the highest form of female spirituality? Or was she anesthetized, frigid, a cold fish in fact? a dazed addict of the xylophone, the cult of beauty, and Boko Maru? I shall never know. Boconin tells us, A lover's a liar, to himself he lies. The truthful are loveless, like oysters their eyes. So my instructions are clear, I suppose. I am to remember my Mona as having been sublime. Tell me, I appealed to young Philip Castle on the day of the hundred martyrs to democracy, have you spoken to your friend and admirer H. Low Crosby today? He didn't recognize me with a suit and shoes and necktie on, young Castle replied. We've already had a nice talk about bicycles. We may have another. I found that I was no longer amused by Crosby's wanting to build bicycles in San Lorenzo. As chief executive of the island, I wanted a bicycle factory very much. I developed sudden respect for what H. Low Crosby was and could do. 
How do you think the people of San Lorenzo would take to industrialization? I asked the castle's father and son. The people of San Lorenzo, the father told me, are interested in only three things. Fishing, fornication, and boconianism. Don't you think they could be interested in progress? They've seen some of it. There's only one aspect of progress that really excites them. Oh, what's that? The electric guitar. I excused myself, and I rejoined the Crosbys. Frank Honecker was with them, explaining who Boconin was and what he was against. He's against science. How can anybody in his right mind be against science? asked Crosby. I'd be dead now if it wasn't for penicillin, said Hazel, and so would my mother. How old is your mother? I inquired. A hundred and six. Isn't that wonderful? It certainly is, I agreed. And I'd be a widow, too, if it wasn't for the medicine they gave my husband that time, said Hazel. She had to ask her husband the name of the medicine. Honey, what was the name of that stuff that saved your life that time? Sulfathiazole. And I made the mistake of taking an albatross canapé from a passing tray. Chapter 105. Painkiller. As it happened, as it was supposed to happen, Boconan would say, Albatross meat disagreed with me so violently that I was ill the moment I choked the first piece down. I was compelled to canter down the stone spiral staircase in search of a bathroom. I availed myself of one adjacent to Papa's suite. When I shuffled out, somewhat relieved, I was met by Dr. Schlichter von Koenigswald, who was bounding from Papa's bedroom. He had a wild look, and he took me by the arms, and he cried, What is it? What was it he had hanging around his neck? I, I beg your pardon? He took it. Whatever was in that cylinder, Papa took. And now he's dead. I remembered the cylinder Papa had hung around his neck, and I made an obvious guess as to his contents. Cyanide? Cyanide? Cyanide turns a man to cement in a second? Cement? Marble! Iron! I have never seen such a rigid corpse before. Strike it anywhere, and you'll get a note like a marimba. Come look! Von Koenigswald hustled me into Papa's bedroom. In bed, in the golden dinghy, was a hideous thing to see. Papa was dead, but his was not a corpse to which one could say, at rest at last. Papa's head was bent back as far as it would go. His weight rested on the crown of his head and the soles of his feet, with the rest of his body forming a bridge whose arch thrust toward the ceiling. He was shaped like an andiron. That he had died of the contents of the cylinder around his neck was obvious. One hand held the cylinder, and the cylinder was uncapped, and the thumb and index finger of the other hand, as though having just released a little pinch of something, were stuck between his teeth. Dr. von Koenigswald slipped the thole-pin of an oarlock from its socket in the gunwale of the gilded dinghy. He tapped Papa on the belly with the steel oarlock, and Papa really did make a sound like a marimba. And Papa's lips and nostrils and eyeballs were glazed with a blue-white frost. Such a syndrome is no novelty now, God knows, but it certainly was then. Papa Manzano was the first man in history to die of Ice Nine. I record that fact for whatever it may be worth. Write it all down, Boconan tells us. He is really telling us, of course, how futile it is to write or read histories. Without accurate records of the past, how can men and women be expected to avoid making serious mistakes in the future? He asks, ironically. So again, Papa Manzano was the first man in history to die of Ice Nine. Chapter 106 What Boconanists Say When They Commit Suicide 
Dr. von Koenigswald, the humanitarian with the terrible deficit of Auschwitz in his kindliness account, was the second to die of ice nine. He was talking about rigor mortis, a subject I had introduced. Rigor mortis does not set in in seconds, he declared. I turned my back to Papa for just a moment. He was raving. About what? I asked. Pain, ice, Mona, everything. And then Papa said, Now I will destroy the whole world. What did he mean by that? It's what Bokolinists always say when they are about to commit suicide. Von Koenigswald went to a basin of water, meaning to wash his hands. When I turned to look at him, he told me, his hands poised over the water, he was dead, as hard as a statue, just as you see him. I brushed my fingers over his lips. They looked so peculiar. He put his hands into the water. What chemical could possibly... The question trailed off. Von Koenigswald raised his hands, and the water in the basin came with them. It was no longer water, but a hemisphere of ice nine. Von Koenigswald touched the tip of his tongue to the blue-white mystery. Frost bloomed on his lips. He froze solid, tottered, and crashed. The blue-white hemisphere shattered. Chunks skittered over the floor. I went to the door and bawled for help. Soldiers and servants came running. I ordered them to bring Frank and Newt and Angela to Papa's room at once. At last I had seen Ice Nine. Chapter 107 Feast Your Eyes I let the three children of Dr. Felix Honecker into Papa Manzano's bedroom. I closed the door and put my back to it. My mood was bitter and grand. I knew Ice Nine for what it was. I had seen it often in my dreams. There could be no doubt that Frank had given Papa Ice Nine, and it seemed certain that if Ice Nine were Frank's to give, then it was Angela's and little Newt's to give, too. So I snarled at all three, calling them to account for monstrous criminality. I told them that the jig was up, that I knew about them and Ice Nine. I tried to alarm them about Ice Nine's being a means to ending life on Earth. I was so impressive that they never thought to ask how I knew about Ice Nine. Feast your eyes, I said. Well, as Boconin tells us, God never wrote a good play in his life. The scene in Papa's room did not lack for spectacular issues and props, and my opening speech was the right one. But the first reply from a Honecker destroyed all magnificence. Little Newt threw up. Chapter 108 Frank Tells Us What to Do And then we all wanted to throw up. Newt certainly did what was called for. I couldn't agree more, I told Newt, and I snarled at Angela and Frank. Now that we've got Newt's opinion, I'd like to hear what you two have to say. Ugh, said Angela, cringing, her tongue out. She was the color of putty. Are those your sentiments, too? I asked Frank. Uck, General, is that what you say? Frank had his teeth bared, and the teeth were clenched, and he was breathing shallowly and whistling between them. Like the dog murmured little Newt, looking down at von Koenigswald. What dog? Newt whispered his answer, and there was scarcely any wind behind the whisper, but such were the acoustics of the stone-walled room that we all heard the whisper as clearly as we would have heard the chiming of a crystal bell. Christmas Eve, when father died. Newt was talking to himself, and when I asked him to tell me about the dog on the night his father died, he looked up at me as though I had intruded on a dream. He found me irrelevant. His brother and sister, however, belonged in the dream, and he talked to his brother in that nightmare, told Frank, You gave it to him. 
That's how you got this fancy job, isn't it? Newt asked Frank wonderingly. What did you tell him? That you had something better than the hydrogen bomb? Frank didn't acknowledge the question. He was looking around the room intently, taking it all in. He unclenched his teeth, and he made them click rapidly, blinking his eyes with every click. His color was coming back. This is what he said. Listen, we got to clean up this mess. Chapter 109. Frank Defends Himself General, I told Frank, that must be one of the most cogent statements made by a major general this year. As my technical advisor, how do you recommend that we, as you put it so well, clean up this mess? Frank gave me a straight answer. He snapped his fingers. I could see him dissociating himself from the causes of the mess, identifying himself with growing pride and energy, with the purifiers, the world savers, the cleaners up. Brooms, dustpans, blowtorch, hot plate, buckets, he commanded, snapping, snapping, snapping his fingers. You propose applying a blowtorch to the bodies, I asked. Frank was so charged with technical thinking now that he was practically tap dancing to the music of his fingers. We'll sweep up the big pieces on the floor, melt them in a bucket on a hot plate. Then we'll go over every square inch of the floor with a blowtorch in case there are any microscopic crystals. What we'll do with the bodies and the bed... He had to think some more. A funeral pyre, he cried, really pleased with himself. I'll have a great big funeral pyre built out by the hook, and we'll have the bodies and the bed carried out and thrown on. He started to leave, to order the pyre built, and to get the things we needed in order to clean up the room. Angela stopped him. How could you? she wanted to know. Frank gave her a glassy smile. Everything's going to be all right. How could you give it to a man like Papa Manzano? Angela asked him. Let's clean up the mess first, then we can talk. Angela had him by the arms, and she wouldn't let him go. How could you? She shook him. Frank pried his sister's hands from himself. His glassy smile went away, and he turned sneeringly nasty for a moment. A moment in which he told her, with all possible contempt, I bought myself a job, just the way you bought yourself a tomcat husband, just the way Newt bought himself a week on Cape Cod with a Russian midget. The glassy smile returned. Frank left, and he slammed the door. Chapter 110 The Fourteenth Book Sometimes Pulpa, Bokonin tells us, exceeds the power of humans to comment. Bokonin translates Pulpa at one point in the books of Bokonin as Shitstorm, and at another point as Wrath of God. From what Frank had said before he slammed the door, I gathered that the Republic of San Lorenzo and the three Honeckers weren't the only ones who had Ice Nine. Apparently the United States of America and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics had it too. The United States had obtained it through Angela's husband, whose plant in Indianapolis was understandably surrounded by electrified fences and homicidal German shepherds. And Soviet Russia had come by it through Newt's little Zinka, that winsome troll of Ukrainian ballet. I was without comment. I bowed my head and closed my eyes, and I awaited Frank's return with the humble tools it would take to clean up one bedroom. One bedroom out of all the bedrooms in the world. A bedroom infested with Ice Nine. Somewhere in the violet, velvet oblivion, I heard Angela say something to me. It wasn't in her own defense. It was in defense of little Newt. Newt didn't give it to her. She stole it. I found the explanation uninteresting. What hope can there be for mankind, I thought, 
when there are such men as Felix Honecker to give such playthings as Ice Nine to such short-sighted children as almost all men and women are. And I remembered the fourteenth book of Bokonin, which I had read in its entirety the night before. The fourteenth book is entitled, What Can a Thoughtful Man Hope for Mankind on Earth, Given the Experience of the Past Million Years? It doesn't take long to read the fourteenth book. It consists of one word and a period. This is it. Nothing. Chapter 111 Time Out Frank came back with brooms and dustpans, a blowtorch, and a kerosene hot plate, and a good old bucket and rubber gloves. We put on the gloves in order not to contaminate our hands with Ice Nine. Frank set the hot plate on the heavenly Mona xylophone and put the honest old bucket on top of that. And we picked up the bigger chunks of Ice Nine from the floor, and we dropped them into that humble bucket, and they melted. They became good old, sweet old, honest old water. Angela and I swept the floor, and little Newt looked under furniture for bits of Ice Nine we might have missed, and Frank followed our sweeping with the purifying flame of the torch. The brainless serenity of charwomen and janitors working late at night came over us. In a messy world, we were at least making our little corner clean. And I heard myself asking Newt and Angela and Frank in conversational tones to tell me about the Christmas Eve on which the old man died, to tell me about the dog, and, childishly sure that they were making everything all right by cleaning up, the Honekers told me the tale. The tale went like this. On that fateful Christmas Eve, Angela went into the village for Christmas tree lights, and Newt and Frank went for a walk on the lonely winter beach, where they met a black Labrador retriever. The dog was friendly, as all Labrador retrievers are, and he followed Frank and little Newt home. Felix Honecker died, died in his white wicker chair looking out at the sea, while his children were gone. All day the old man had been teasing his children with hints about Ice Nine, showing it to them in a little bottle on whose label he had drawn a skull and crossbones, and on whose label he had written, Danger, Ice Nine, Keep Away from Moisture. All day long the old man had been nagging his children with words like these, merry in tone, Come on now, stretch your minds a little. I've told you that its melting point is 114.4 degrees Fahrenheit, and I've told you that it's composed of nothing but hydrogen and oxygen. What could the explanation be? Think a little. Don't be afraid of straining your brains. They won't break. He was always telling us to stretch our brains, said Frank, recalling olden times. I gave up trying to stretch my brain when I don't know how old I was, Angela confessed, leaning on her broom. I couldn't even listen to him when he talked about science. I'd just nod and pretend I was trying to stretch my brain. But that poor brain, as far as science went, didn't have any more stretch than an old garter belt. Apparently, before he sat down in his wicker chair and died, the old man had played puddly games in the kitchen with water and pots and pans of Ice Nine. He must have been converting water to Ice Nine and back to water again, for every pot and pan was out on the kitchen countertops. A meat thermometer was out, too, so the old man must have been taking the temperature of things. The old man meant only to take a brief time out in his chair, for he left quite a mess in the kitchen. Part of the disorder was a saucepan filled with solid ice nine. He no doubt meant to melt it up, to reduce the world's supply of the blue-white stuff to a splinter in a bottle again, after a brief time out. But as Boconin tells us, any man can call time out, but no man can say how long the time out will be. Chapter 112 
Mute's mother's reticule. I should have known he was dead the minute I came in, said Angela, leaning on her broom again. That wicker chair, it wasn't making a sound. It always talked, creaked away when father was in it, even when he was asleep. But Angela had assumed that her father was sleeping, and she went on to decorate the Christmas tree. Newt and Frank came in with the Labrador Retriever. They went out to the kitchen to find something for the dog to eat. They found the old man's puddles. There was water on the floor, and little Newt took a dish rag and wiped it up. He tossed the sopping dish rag onto the counter. As it happened, the dish rag fell into the pan containing ice nine. Frank thought the pan contained some sort of cake frosting, and he held it down to Newt to show Newt what his carelessness with the dish rag had done. Newt peeled the dish rag from the surface and found that the dish rag had a peculiar metallic, snaky quality, as though it were made of finely woven gold mesh. The reason I say gold mesh, said little Newt there in Papa's bedroom, is that it reminded me right away of Mother's reticule, of how the reticule felt. Angela explained sentimentally that when a child, Newt had treasured his mother's gold reticule. I gathered that it was a little evening bag. It felt so funny to me, like nothing else I'd ever touched, said Newt, investigating his old fondness for the reticule. I wonder what ever happened to it. I wonder what happened to a lot of things, said Angela. The question echoed back through time, woeful, lost. What happened to the dish rag that felt like a reticule, at any rate, was that Newt held it out to the dog, and the dog licked it, and the dog froze stiff. Newt went to tell his father about the stiff dog, and found out that his father was stiff too. Chapter 113 History Our work in Papa's bedroom was done at last, but the body still had to be carried to the funeral pyre. We decided that this should be done with pomp, that we should put it off until the ceremonies in honor of the hundred martyrs to democracy were over. The last thing we did was stand von Koenigswald on his feet in order to decontaminate the place where he had been lying, and then we hid him, standing up, in Papa's clothes closet. I'm not quite sure why we hid him. I think it must have been to simplify the tableau. As for Newt's and Angela's and Frank's tale of how they divided up the world's supply of Ice Nine on Christmas Eve, it petered out when they got to details of the crime itself. The Honeckers couldn't remember that anyone said anything to justify their taking Ice Nine as personal property. They talked about what Ice Nine was, recalling the old man's brain stretchers. But there was no talk of morals. Who did the dividing? I inquired. So thoroughly had the three Honeckers obliterated their memories of the incident that it was difficult for them to give me even that fundamental detail. It wasn't Newt, said Angela at last. I'm sure of that. It was either you or me, mused Frank, thinking hard. You got the three mason jars off the kitchen shelf, said Angela. It wasn't until the next day that we got the three little thermos jugs. That's right, Frank agreed. And then you took an ice pick and chipped up the ice nine in the saucepan. That's right, said Angela. I did. And then somebody brought tweezers from the bathroom. Newt raised his little hand. I did. Angela and Newt were amazed, remembering how enterprising little Newt had been. I was the one who picked up the chips and put them in the mason jars, Newt recounted. He didn't bother to hide the swagger he must have felt. What did you people do with the dog? I asked limply. We put him in the oven, Frank told me. It was the only thing to do. History, writes Boconan. Read it and weep. Chapter 114 When I Felt the Bullet Enter My Heart 
So I once again mounted the spiral staircase in my tower, once again arrived at the uppermost battlement of my castle, and once more looked out at my guests, my servants, my cliff, and my lukewarm sea. The Honickers were with me. We had locked Papa's door and had spread the word among the household staff that Papa was feeling much better. Soldiers were now building a funeral pyre out by the hook. They did not know what the pyre was for. There were many, many secrets that day. Busy, busy, busy. I supposed that the ceremonies might as well begin, and I told Frank to suggest to Ambassador Horlick Minton that he deliver his speech. Ambassador Minton went to the seaward parapet with his memorial wreath still in its case, and he delivered an amazing speech in honor of the hundred martyrs to democracy. He dignified the dead, their country, and the life that was over for them by saying, the hundred martyrs to democracy in island dialect. That fragment of dialect was graceful and easy on his lips. The rest of his speech was in American English. He had a written speech with him, bustion and bombast, I imagine, but when he found he was going to speak to so few, and to fellow Americans for the most part, he put the formal speech away. A light sea wind ruffled his thinning hair. I am about to do a very unambassadorial thing, he declared. I am about to tell you what I really feel. Perhaps Minton had inhaled too much acetone, or perhaps he had an inkling of what was about to happen to everybody but me. At any rate, it was a strikingly Boconanist speech he gave. We are gathered here, friends, he said, to honor Lohoniera Mortus Tudzamocratia, children dead, all dead, all murdered in war. It is customary on days like this to call such lost children men. I am unable to call them men for this simple reason, that in the same year in which Lohoniera Mortuz Tutzamokratia died, my own son died. My soul insists that I mourn not a man, but a child. I do not say that children at war do not die like men, if they have to die. To their everlasting honor and our everlasting shame they do die like men thus making possible the manly jubilation of patriotic holidays. But they are murdered children all the same. And I propose to you that if we are to pay our sincere respects to the hundred lost children of San Lorenzo, that we might best spend the day despising what killed them, which is to say, the stupidity and viciousness of all mankind. Perhaps when we remember wars, we should take off our clothes and paint ourselves blue, and go on all fours all day long and grunt like pigs. That would surely be more appropriate than noble oratory and shows of flags and well-oiled guns. I do not mean to be ungrateful for the fine martial show we are about to see, and a thrilling show it really will be. He looked each of us in the eye, and then he commented very softly, throwing it away, and hooray, I say, for thrilling shows. We had to strain our ears to hear what Minton said next. But if today is really in honor of a hundred children murdered in war, he said, is today a day for thrilling show? The answer is yes, on one condition, that we, the celebrants, are working consciously and tirelessly to reduce the stupidity and viciousness of ourselves and of all mankind. He unsnapped the catches on his wreath case. See what I have brought? he asked us. He opened the case and showed us the scarlet lining and the golden wreath. The wreath was made of wire and artificial laurel leaves, and the whole was sprayed with radiator paint. The wreath was spanned by a cream-colored silk ribbon on which was printed, Propatria. 
Minton now recited a poem from Edgar Lee Masters' The Spoon River Anthology, a poem that must have been incomprehensible to the San Lorenzans in the audience, and to H. Low Crosby and his Hazel too, for that matter, and to Angela and Frank. I was the first fruits of the Battle of Missionary Ridge. When I felt the bullet enter my heart, I wished I had stayed at home and gone to jail for stealing the hogs of Curl Trenary, instead of running away and joining the army. Rather a thousand times the county jail than to die under this marble figure with wings, and this granite pedestal bearing the words, Propatria. What do they mean, anyway? What do they mean, anyway? echoed Ambassador Horlick Minton. They mean, for one's country. And he threw away another line. Any country at all, he murmured. This wreath I bring is a gift from the people of one country to the people of another. Never mind which countries. Think of people and children murdered in war. And any country at all. Think of peace. Think of brotherly love. Think of plenty. Think of what paradise this world would be if men were kind and wise. As stupid and vicious as men are, this is a lovely day, said Ambassador Horlick Mitten. I, in my own heart, and as a representative of the peace-loving people of the United States of America, pity Lohanyera Moratours to Zamakratia for being dead on this fine day. And he sailed the wreath off the parapet. There was a hum in the air. The six planes of the San Lorenzo Air Force were coming, skimming my lukewarm sea. They were going to shoot the effigies of what H. Low Crosby had called practically every enemy that freedom ever had. Chapter 115 As It Happened We went to the seaward parapet to see the show. The planes were no larger than grains of black pepper. We were able to spot them because one, as it happened, was trailing smoke. We supposed that the smoke was part of the show. I stood next to H. Low Crosby, who, as it happened, was alternately eating albatross and drinking native rum. He exhaled fumes of model airplane cement between lips glistening with albatross fat. My recent nausea returned. I withdrew to the landward parapet alone, gulping air. There were sixty feet of old stone pavement between me and all the rest. I saw that the planes would be coming in low, below the footings of the castle, and that I would miss the show. But nausea made me incurious. I turned my head in the direction of their now snarling approach. Just as their guns began to hammer, one plane, the one that had been trailing smoke, suddenly appeared, belly up, in flames. It dropped from my line of sight again and crashed at once into the cliff below the castle. Its bombs and fuel exploded. The surviving planes went booming on, their racket thinning down to a mosquito hum. And then there was the sound of a rock slide and one great tower of Papa's castle, undermined, crashed down to the sea. The people on the seaward parapet looked in astonishment at the empty socket where the tower had stood. Then I could hear rock slides of all sizes in a conversation that was almost orchestral. The conversation went very fast, and new voices entered in. They were the voices of the castle's great timbers, lamenting that their burdens were becoming too great. And then a crack crossed the battlement like lightning, ten feet from my curling toes. It separated me from my fellow men. The castle groaned and wept aloud. The others comprehended their peril. They, along with tons of masonry, were about to lurch out and down. Although the crack was only a foot wide, people began to cross it with heroic leaps. Only my complacent Mona crossed the crack with a single step. The crack gnashed shut, 
opened wider, leeringly. Still trapped on the canted death trap were H. Lo Crosby and his Hazel, and Ambassador Horlick Minton and his Claire. Philip Castle and Frank and I reached across the abyss to haul the Crosbys to safety. Our arms were now extended imploringly to the Mintons. Their expressions were bland. I can only guess what was going through their minds. My guess is that they were thinking of dignity, of emotional proportion above all else. Panic was not their style. I doubt that suicide was their style either, but their good manners killed them, for the doomed crescent of castle now moved away from us like an ocean liner moving away from a dock. The image of a voyage seems to have occurred to the voyaging Mintons too, for they waved to us with wan amiability. They held hands. They faced the sea. Out they went. Then down they went in a cataclysmic rush. Were gone. Chapter 116 The Grand Ahum The ragged rim of oblivion was now inches from my curling toes. I looked down. My lukewarm sea had swallowed all. A lazy curtain of dust was wafting out to sea, the only trace of all that fell. The palace, its massive seaward mask now gone, greeted the north with a leper's smile, snaggletoothed and bristly. The bristles were the splintered ends of timbers. Immediately below me a large chamber had been laid open. The floor of that chamber, unsupported, stabbed out into space like a diving platform. I dreamed for a moment of dropping to the platform, of springing up from it in a breathtaking swan dive, of folding my arms, of knifing downward into a blood-warm eternity with never a splash. I was recalled from this dream by the cry of a darting bird above me. It seemed to be asking me what had happened. Potipuit, it asked. We all looked up at the bird, and then at one another. We backed away from the abyss, full of dread, and when I stepped off the paving stone that had supported me, the stone began to rock. It was no more stable than a teeter-totter, and it tottered now over the diving platform. Down it crashed onto the platform, made the platform a chute, and down the chute came the furnishings still remaining in the room below. A xylophone shot out first, scampering fast on its tiny wheels. Out came a bedside table in a crazy race with a bounding blowtorch. Out came chairs in hot pursuit. And somewhere in that room below, out of sight, something mightily reluctant to move was beginning to move. Down the chute it crept. At last it showed its golden bow. It was the boat in which dead Papa lay. It reached the end of the chute. Its bow nodded. Down it tipped. And down it fell, end over end. Papa was thrown clear, and he fell separately. I closed my eyes. There was a sound like that of the gentle closing of a portal as big as the sky, the great door of heaven being closed softly. It was a grand, a whoo. I opened my eyes, and all the sea was ice nine. The moist green earth was a blue-white pearl. The sky darkened. Borasisi the sun became a sickly yellow ball, tiny and cruel. The sky was filled with worms. The worms were tornadoes. Chapter 117 Sanctuary I looked up at the sky where the bird had been. An enormous worm with a violet mouth was directly overhead. It buzzed like bees. It swayed. With obscene peristalsis it ingested air. We humans separated, fled my shattered battlements, tumbled down staircases on the landward side. Only H. Low Crosby and his Hazel cried out. American! American! they cried, as though tornadoes were interested in the grand falloons to which their victims belonged. 
I could not see the Crosbys. They had descended by another staircase. Their cries and the sounds of others, panting and running, came gabbling to me through a corridor of the castle. My only companion was my heavenly Mona, who had followed noiselessly. When I hesitated, she slipped past me and opened the door to the anteroom of Papa's suite. The walls and roof of the anteroom were gone, but the stone floor remained, and in its center was the manhole cover of the oubliette. Under the wormy sky, in the flickering violet light from the mouths of tornadoes that wished to eat us, I lifted the cover. The esophagus of the dungeon was fitted with iron rungs. I replaced the manhole cover from within. Down those iron rungs we went. And at the foot of the ladder we found a state secret. Papa Manzano had caused a cozy bomb shelter to be constructed there. It had a ventilation shaft with a fan driven by a stationary bicycle. A tank of water was recessed in one wall. The water was sweet and wet, as yet untainted by Ice Nine. And there was a chemical toilet, and a shortwave radio, and a Sears Roebuck catalog. And there were cases of delicacies, and liquor, and candles. And there were bound copies of the National Geographic going back twenty years. And there was a set of the books of Boconan. And there were twin beds. I lighted a candle. I opened a can of Campbell's chicken gumbo soup, and I put it on a sterno stove. And I poured two glasses of Virgin Islands rum. Mona sat on the bed. I sat down on the other. I'm about to say something that must have been said by men to women several times before, I informed her. However, I don't believe that these words have ever carried quite the freight they carry now. Oh? I spread my hands. Here we are. Chapter 118 the Iron Maiden and the Oubliette. The sixth book of the books of Boconan is devoted to pain, in particular to tortures inflicted by men on men. If I am ever put to death on the hook, Boconan warns us, expect a very human performance. Then he speaks of the Rack and the Pettywinkus and the Iron Maiden and the Veglia and the Oubliette. In any case, there's bound to be much crying, but the Oubliette alone will let you think while dying. And so it was in Mona's and my rock tomb. At least we could think. And one thing I thought was that the creature comforts of the dungeon did nothing to mitigate the basic fact of obliation. During our first day and night underground, tornadoes rattled our manhole cover many times an hour. Each time the pressure in our hole would drop suddenly, and our ears would pop and our heads would ring. As for the radio, there was crackling, fizzing static, and that was all. From one end of the shortwave band to the other, not one word, not one telegrapher's beep did I hear. If life still existed here and there, it did not broadcast. Nor does life broadcast to this day. This I assumed. Tornadoes, strewing the poisonous blue-white frost of Ice Nine everywhere, tore everyone and everything above ground to pieces. Anything that still lived would die soon enough of thirst, or hunger, or rage, or apathy. I turned to the books of Boconan, still sufficiently unfamiliar with them to believe that they contained spiritual comfort somewhere. I passed quickly over the warning on the title page of the first book. Don't be a fool. Close this book at once. It is nothing but Foma. Foma, of course, are lies. And then I read this. In the beginning, God created the earth, and he looked upon it in his cosmic loneliness. And God said, let us make living creatures out of mud, so the mud can see what we have done. And God created every living creature that now moveth, and one was man. 
Mud as man alone could speak. God leaned close as mud as man sat up, looked around and spoke. Man blinked. What is the purpose of all of this? he asked politely. Everything must have a purpose? asked God. Certainly, said the man. Then I leave it to you to think of one for all of this, said God. And he went away. I thought this was trash. Of course it's trash, says Bokonan. And I turned to my heavenly Mona for comforting secrets a good deal more profound. I was able, while mooning at her across the space that separated our beds, to imagine that behind her marvelous eyes lurked mysteries as old as Eve. I will not go into the sordid sex episode that followed. Suffice it to say that I was both repulsive and repulsed. The girl was not interested in reproduction, hated the idea. Before the tussle was over, I was given full credit by her and by myself too, for having invented the whole bizarre, grunting, sweating enterprise by which new human beings were made. Returning to my own bed, gnashing my teeth, I supposed that she honestly had no idea what lovemaking was all about. But then she said to me gently, It would be very sad to have a little baby now. Don't you agree? Yes, I agreed murkily. Well, that's the way little babies are made, in case you didn't know. Chapter 119 Mona Thanks Me Today I will be a Bulgarian Minister of Education, Bokonin tells us. Tomorrow I will be Helen of Troy. His meaning is crystal clear. Each one of us has to be what he or she is. And down in the oubliette, that was mainly what I thought, with the help of the books of Bokonin. Bokonin invited me to sing along with him. We do doodly-doo, 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 what we must, muddly, must, muddly, must, muddly, must, muddly-doo, 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 until we bust, bodily bust, bodily bust, bodily bust. I made up a tune to go with that, and I whistled it under my breath as I drove the bicycle that drove the fan that gave us air. Good old air. Man breathes in oxygen and exhales carbon dioxide, I called to Mona. What? Science. Oh. One of the secrets of life, man was a long time understanding. Animals breathe in what animals breathe out, and vice versa. I didn't know. You know now. Thank you. You're welcome. When I bicycled our atmosphere to sweetness and freshness, I dismounted and climbed the iron rungs to see what the weather was like above. I did that several times a day. On that day, the fourth day, I perceived through the narrow crescent of the lifted manhole cover that the weather had become somewhat stabilized. The stability was of a wildly dynamic sort, for the tornadoes were as numerous as ever, and tornadoes remain numerous to this day. But their mouths no longer gobbled and gnashed at the earth. The mouths in all directions were discreetly withdrawn to an altitude of perhaps a half of a mile, and their altitude varied so little from moment to moment that San Lorenzo might have been protected by a tornado-proof sheet of glass. We let three more days go by, making certain that the tornadoes had become as sincerely reticent as they seemed. And then we filled canteens from our water tank, and we went above. The air was hot and dry and deathly still. I had heard it suggested one time that the seasons in the temperate zone ought to be six rather than four in number. Summer, autumn, locking, winter, unlocking, and spring. And I remembered that as I straightened up beside our manhole and stared and listened and sniffed. There were no smells. There was no movement. Every step I took made a gravelly squeak in blue-white frost, and every squeak was echoed loudly. The season of locking was over. 
the earth was locked up tight. It was winter, now and forever. I helped my Mona out of our hole. I warned her to keep her hands away from the blue-white frost, and to keep her hands away from her mouth, too. Death has never been quite so easy to come by, I told her. All you have to do is touch the ground and then touch your lips, and you're done for. She shook her head and sighed. A very bad mother. What? Mother Earth. She isn't a very good mother anymore. Hello? Hello? I called through the palace ruins. The awesome winds had torn canyons through that great stone pile. Mona and I made a half-hearted search for survivors, half-hearted because we could sense no life. Not even a nibbling, twinkle-nosed rat had survived. The arch of the palace gate was the only man-made form untouched. Mona and I went to it. Written at its base in white paint was a Boconanist calypso. The lettering was neat. It was new. It was proof that someone else had survived the winds. The calypso was this. Someday, someday, this crazy world will have to end, and our God will take things back that he to us did lend. And if on that sad day you want to scold our God, why go right ahead and scold him. He'll just smile and nod. Chapter 120 To Whom It May Concern I recalled an advertisement for a set of children's books called The Book of Knowledge. In that ad, a trusting boy and girl looked up at their father. Daddy, one asked, what makes the sky blue? The answer presumably could be found in the Book of Knowledge. If I had had my daddy beside me as Mona and I walked down the road from the palace, I would have had plenty of questions to ask as I clung to his hand. Daddy, why are all the trees broken? Daddy, why are all the birds dead? Daddy, what makes the sky so sick and wormy? Daddy, what makes the sea so hard and still? It occurred to me that I was better qualified to answer those tough questions than any other human being, provided there were any other human beings alive. In case anyone was interested, I knew what had gone wrong, where and how. So what? I wondered where the dead could be. Mona and I ventured more than a mile from our oubliette without seeing one dead human being. I wasn't half so curious about the living, probably because I sensed accurately that I would first have to contemplate a lot of dead. I saw no columns of smoke from possible campfires, but they would have been hard to see against an horizon of worms. One thing did catch my eye. A lavender corona about the queer plug that was the peak on the hump of Mount McCabe. It seemed to be calling me, and I had a silly, cinematic notion of climbing that peak with Mona. But what would it mean? We were walking into the wrinkles now at the foot of Mount McCabe, and Mona, as though aimlessly, left my side, left the road, and climbed one of the wrinkles. I followed. I joined her at the top of the ridge. She was looking down raptly into a broad, natural bowl. She was not crying. She might well have cried. In that bowl were thousands upon thousands of dead. On the lips of each decedent was the blue-white frost of Ice Nine. Since the corpses were not scattered or tumbled about, it was clear that they had been assembled since the withdrawal of the frightful winds. And, since each corpse had its finger in or near its mouth, I understood that each person had delivered himself to this melancholy place, and then poisoned himself with Ice Nine. There were men, women, and children too, many in the attitudes of Boko Maru. All faced the center of the bowl as though they were spectators in an amphitheater. Mona and I looked at the focus of all those frosted eyes, looked at the center of the bowl. There was a round clearing there, 
a place in which one orator might have stood. Mona and I approached the clearing gingerly, avoiding the morbid statuary. We found a boulder in it, and under the boulder was a penciled note which said, To whom it may concern, these people around you are almost all the survivors on San Lorenzo of the winds that followed the freezing of the sea. These people made a captive of the spurious holy man named Boconan. They brought him here, placed him at their center, and commanded him to tell them exactly what God Almighty was up to and what they should do now. The mountebank told them that God was surely trying to kill them, possibly because he was through with them, and that they should have the good manners to die. This, as you can see, they did. The note was signed by Boconan. Chapter 120 To Whom It May Concern I recalled an advertisement for a set of children's books called The Book of Knowledge. In that ad, a trusting boy and girl looked up at their father. Daddy, one asked, what makes the sky blue? The answer presumably could be found in the Book of Knowledge. If I had had my daddy beside me as Mona and I walked down the road from the palace, I would have had plenty of questions to ask as I clung to his hand. Daddy, why are all the trees broken? Daddy, why are all the birds dead? Daddy, what makes the sky so sick and wormy? Daddy, what makes the sea so hard and still? It occurred to me that I was better qualified to answer those tough questions than any other human being, provided there were any other human beings alive. In case anyone was interested, I knew what had gone wrong, where and how. So what? I wondered where the dead could be. Mona and I ventured more than a mile from our oubliette without seeing one dead human being. I wasn't half so curious about the living, probably because I sensed accurately that I would first have to contemplate a lot of dead. I saw no columns of smoke from possible campfires, but they would have been hard to see against an horizon of worms. One thing did catch my eye, a lavender corona about the queer plug that was the peak on the hump of Mount McCabe. It seemed to be calling me, and... I had a silly, cinematic notion of climbing that peak with Mona. But what would it mean? We were walking into the wrinkles now at the foot of Mount McCabe, and Mona, as though aimlessly, left my side, left the road, and climbed one of the wrinkles. I followed. I joined her at the top of the ridge. She was looking down raptly into a broad, natural bowl. She was not crying. She might well have cried. In that bowl were thousands upon thousands of dead. On the lips of each decedent was the blue-white frost of Ice Nine. Since the corpses were not scattered or tumbled about, it was clear that they had been assembled since the withdrawal of the frightful winds. And, since each corpse had its finger in or near its mouth, I understood that each person had delivered himself to this melancholy place, and then poisoned himself with Ice Nine. There were men, women, and children too, many in the attitudes of Boko Maru, all faced the center of the bowl as though they were spectators in an amphitheater. Mona and I looked at the focus of all those frosted eyes, looked at the center of the bowl. There was a round clearing there, a place in which one orator might have stood. Mona and I approached the clearing gingerly, avoiding the morbid statuary. We found a boulder in it, and under the boulder was a penciled note which said, To whom it may concern... These people around you are almost all the survivors on San Lorenzo of the winds that followed the freezing of the sea. These people made a captive of the spurious holy man named Boconan. They brought him here, placed him at their center, and commanded him to tell them exactly what God Almighty was up to and what they should do now. The mountebank told them that God was surely trying to kill them, possibly because he was through with them, 
and that they should have the good manners to die. This, as you can see, they did. The note was signed by Bokonan. Chapter 121 I am slow to answer. What a cynic, I gasped. I looked up from the note and gazed around the death-filled bowl. Is he here somewhere? I do not see him, said Mona mildly. She wasn't depressed or angry. In fact, she seemed to verge on laughter. He always said he would never take his own advice because he knew it was worthless. He'd better be here, I said bitterly. Think of the gall of the man advising all these people to kill themselves. Now Mona did laugh. I had never heard her laugh. Her laugh was startlingly deep and raw. This strikes you as funny? She raised her arms lazily. It's all so simple, that's all. It solves so much for so many, so simply. And she went strolling up among the petrified thousands, still laughing. She paused about midway up the slope and faced me. She called down to me, Would you wish any of these alive again if you could? Answer me quickly. Not quick enough with your answer, she called playfully, after half a minute had passed. And still laughing a little, she touched her finger to the ground, straightened up, and touched the finger to her lips, and died. Did I weep? They say I did. H. Low Crosby and his Hazel and little Newton Honecker came upon me as I stumbled down the road. They were in Bolivar's one taxicab, which had been spared by the storm. They tell me I was crying. Hazel cried too, cried for joy that I was alive. They coaxed me into the cab. Hazel put her arm around me. You're with your mom now. Don't you worry about a thing. I let my mind go blank. I closed my eyes. It was with deep, idiotic relief that I leaned on that fleshy, humid, barnyard fool. Chapter 122 The Swiss Family Robinson They took me to what was left of Franklin Honecker's house at the head of the waterfall. What remained was the cave under the waterfall, which had become a sort of igloo under a translucent blue-white dome of Ice Nine. The menage consisted of Frank, Little Newt, and the Crosbys. They had survived in a dungeon in the palace, one far shallower and more unpleasant than the oubliette. They had moved out the moment the winds had abated, while Mona and I stayed underground for another three days. As it happened, they had found the miraculous taxicab waiting for them under the arch of the palace gate. They had found a can of white paint, and on the front doors of the cab Frank had painted white stars, and on the roof he had painted the letters of a grand falloon, USA. And you left the paint under the arch, I said. How did you know? asked Crosby. Somebody else came along and wrote a poem. I did not inquire at once as to how Angela Honecker Connors and Philip and Julian Castle had met their ends, for I would have to speak at once about Mona. I wasn't ready to do that yet. I particularly didn't want to discuss the death of Mona, since, as we rode along in the taxi, the Crosbys and little Newt seemed so inappropriately gay. Hazel gave me a clue to the gaiety. Wait until you see how we live. We've got all kinds of good things to eat. Whenever we want water, we just build a campfire and melt some. The Swiss Family Robinson. That's what we call ourselves. Chapter 123 Of Mice and Men A curious six months followed, the six months in which I wrote this book. Hazel spoke accurately when she called our little society the Swiss Family Robinson, for we had survived a storm, were isolated, and then the living became very easy indeed. 
it was not without a certain Walt Disney charm. No plants or animals survived, it's true, but Ice Nine preserved pigs and cows and little deer and windrows of birds and berries until we were ready to thaw and cook them. Moreover, there were tons of canned goods to be had for the grubbing in the ruins of Bolivar, and we seemed to be the only people left on San Lorenzo. Food was no problem, and neither were clothing or shelter, for the weather was uniformly dry and dead and hot. Our health was monotonously good. Apparently all the germs were dead, too, or napping. Our adjustment became so satisfactory, so complacent, that no one marveled or protested when Hazel said, One good thing, anyway. No mosquitoes. She was sitting on a three-legged stool in the clearing where Frank's house had stood. She was sewing strips of red, white, and blue cloth together. Like Betsy Ross, she was making an American flag. No one was unkind enough to point out to her that the red was really a peach, that the blue was nearly a Kelly green, and that the fifty stars she had cut out were six-pointed stars of David rather than five-pointed American stars. Her husband, who had always been a pretty good cook, now simmered a stew in an iron pot over a wood fire nearby. He did all our cooking for us. He loved to cook. Looks good. Smells good, I commented. He winked. Don't shoot the cook. He's doing the best he can. In the background of this cozy conversation were the nagging da-da-das and tit-tit-tits of an automatic SOS transmitter Frank had made. It called for help both night and day. Save our souls, Hazel intoned, singing along with the transmitter as she sewed. Save our souls. How's the writing going? Hazel asked me. Fine, Mom, just fine. When are you going to show us some of it? When it's ready, Mom, when it's ready. A lot of famous writers were Hoosiers. I know. You'll be one of a long, long line. She smiled, hopefully. Is it a funny book? I hope so, Mom. I like a good laugh. I know you do. Each person here had some specialty, something to give the rest. You write books that make us laugh, and Frank does science things, and little Newt... Yeah, he paints pictures for us all, and I sew, and Loey cooks. Many hands make much work light, old Chinese proverb. They were smart in a lot of ways, those Chinese were. Yes, let's keep their memory alive. I wish now I'd studied them more. Well, it was hard to do, even under ideal conditions. I wish now I'd studied everything more. Well, we've all got regrets, Mom. No use crying over spilt milk. As the poet said, Mom... Of all the words of mice and men, the saddest are, it might have been. That's so beautiful and so true. Chapter 124 Frank's Ant Farm I hated to see Hazel finishing the flag, because I was all balled up in her addled plans for it. She had the idea that I had agreed to plant the fool thing on the peak of Mount McCabe. If Lo and I were younger, we'd do it ourselves. Now all we can do is give you the flag and send our best wishes with you. Mom, I wonder if that's really a good place for the flag. What other place is there? I'll put on my thinking cap. I excused myself and went down into the cave to see what Frank was up to. He was up to nothing new. He was watching an ant farm he had constructed. He had dug up a few surviving ants in the three-dimensional world of the ruins of Bolivar and he had reduced the dimensions to two by making a dirt and ant sandwich between two sheets of glass. The ants could do nothing without Frank's catching them at it and commenting upon it. The experiment had solved in short order the mystery of how ants could survive in a waterless world. As far as I know, 
They were the only insects that did survive, and they did it by forming with their bodies tight balls around grains of ice nine. They would generate enough heat at the center to kill half their number and produce one bead of dew. The dew was drinkable. The corpses were edible. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, I said to Frank and his tiny cannibals. His response was always the same. It was a peevish lecture on all the things that people could learn from ants. My responses were ritualized, too. Nature's a wonderful thing, Frank. Nature's a wonderful thing. You know why ants are so successful? He asked me for the thousandth time. They cooperate. That's a hell of a good word. Cooperation. Who taught them how to make water? Who taught me how to make water? That's a silly answer and you know it. Sorry. There was a time when I took people's silly answers seriously. I'm past that now. A milestone. I've grown up a good deal. Add a certain amount of expense to the world. I could say things like that to Frank with an absolute assurance that he would not hear them. There was a time when people could bluff me without much trouble because I didn't have much self-confidence in myself. The mere cutting down of the number of people on earth would go a long way toward alleviating your own particular social problems, I suggested. Again, I made the suggestion to a deaf man. You tell me, you tell me who told those ants how to make water, he challenged me again. Several times I had offered the obvious notion that God had taught them, and I knew from onerous experience that he would neither reject nor accept this theory. He simply got madder and madder, putting the question again and again. I walked away from Frank, just as the books of Boconan advised me to do. Beware of the man who works hard to learn something, learns it, and finds himself no wiser than before, Boconan tells us. He is full of murderous resentment of people who are ignorant, without having come by their ignorance the hard way. I went out looking for our painter, for little Newt. Chapter 125 The Tasmanians When I found little Newt, painting a blasted landscape a quarter of a mile from the cave, he asked me if I would drive him into Bolivar to forage for paints. He couldn't drive himself. He couldn't reach the pedals. So off we went. And on the way, I asked him if he had any sex urge left. I mourned that I had none. No dreams in that line. Nothing. I used to dream of women twenty, thirty, forty feet tall, he told me. But now? God, I can't even remember what my Ukrainian midget looked like. I recalled a thing I had read about the aboriginal Tasmanians, habitually naked persons who, when encountered by white men in the seventeenth century were strangers to agriculture, animal husbandry, architecture of any sort, and possibly even fire. They were so contemptible in the eyes of white men, by reason of their ignorance, that they were hunted for sport by the first settlers, who were convicts from England. And the aborigines found life so unattractive that they gave up reproducing. I suggested to Newt now that it was a similar hopelessness that had unmanned us. Newt made a shrewd observation. I guess all the excitement in bed had more to do with excitement about keeping the human race going than anybody ever imagined. Of course, if we had a woman of breeding age among us, that might change the situation radically. Poor old Hazel is years beyond having even a Mongolian idiot. Newt revealed that he knew quite a bit about Mongolian idiots. He had once attended a special school for grotesque children, and several of his schoolmates had been mongoloids. The best writer in our class was a mongoloid named Myrna. I mean penmanship, not what she actually wrote down. God, I haven't thought about her for years. Was it a good school? All I remember is what the headmaster used to say all the time. 
He was always bawling us out over the loudspeaker system for some mess we'd made, and he always started out the same way. I am sick and tired. That comes pretty close to describing how I feel most of the time. Maybe that's the way you're supposed to feel. You talk like a Boconanist, Newt. Why shouldn't I? As far as I know, Boconanism is the only religion that has any commentary on midgets. When I hadn't been writing, I'd been poring over the books of Boconan, but the reference to midgets had escaped me. I was grateful to Newt for calling it to my attention, for the question captured in a couplet the cruel paradox of Boconanist thought, the heartbreaking necessity of lying about reality, and the heartbreaking impossibility of lying about it. Midget, 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 how he struts and winks, for he knows a man's as big as what he hopes and thinks. Chapter 126 Soft Pipes Play On Such a depressing religion, I cried. I directed our conversation to the area of utopias, of what might have been, of what should have been, of what might yet be if the world would thaw. But Boconan had been there too, had written a whole book about utopias, the seventh book, which he called Boconan's Republic. In that book are these ghastly aphorisms. The hand that stocks the drugstores rules the world. Let us start our republic with a chain of drugstores, a chain of grocery stores, a chain of gas chambers, and a national game. After that, we can write our constitution. I called Boconan a jigaboo bastard, and I changed the subject again. I spoke of meaningful, individual, heroic acts. I praised in particular the way in which Julian Castle and his son had chosen to die. While the tornadoes still raged, they had set out on foot for the house of hope and mercy in the jungle, to give whatever hope and mercy was theirs to give. And I saw magnificence in the way poor Angela had died too. She had picked up a clarinet in the ruins of Bolivar, and had begun to play it at once, without concerning herself as to whether the mouthpiece might be contaminated with Ice Nine. Soft pipes play on, I murmured huskily. Well, maybe you can find some neat way to die too, said Newt. It was a Boconanist thing to say. I blurted out my dream of climbing Mount McCabe with some magnificent symbol and planting it there. I took my hands from the wheel for an instant to show him how empty of symbols they were. But what in hell would the right symbol be, Newt? What in hell would it be? I grabbed the wheel again. Here it is, the end of the world, and here I am, almost the very last man. And there it is, the highest mountain in sight. I know now what my caress has been up to, Newt. It's been working night and day for maybe half a million years to get me up that mountain. I wagged my head and nearly wept. But what, for the love of God, is supposed to be in my hands? I looked out of the car window blindly as I asked that, so blindly that I went more than a mile before realizing that I had looked into the eyes of an old Negro man, a living colored man, who was sitting by the side of the road. And then I slowed down, and then I stopped. I covered my eyes. What's the matter? asked Newt. I saw Boconan back there. Chapter 127 The End He was sitting on a rock. He was barefoot. His feet were frosty with ice nine. His only garment was a white bedspread with blue tufts. The tufts said Casamona. He took no note of our arrival. In one hand was a pencil, in the other was paper. Boconan? Yes? May I ask you what you're thinking? 
I am thinking, young man, about the final sentence for the books of Bokonin. The time for the final sentence has come. Any luck? He shrugged and handed me a piece of paper. This is what I read. If I were a younger man, I would write a history of human stupidity, and I would climb to the top of Mount McCabe and lie down on my back with my history for a pillow, and I would take from the ground some of the blue-white poison that makes statues of men, and I would make a statue of myself, lying on my back, grinning horribly, and thumbing my nose at you-know-who. This concludes the reading of Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut, Jr. This book was read by Dan Lazar. Will you please wind the tape as appropriate so the book will be ready for the next person to enjoy? Thank you.